welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have financial expert, Peter Merrick. Peter's been in the industry for a very long time, and more recently has written a book called The King of Main Street, which is all about business owners at different stages in life and the mentorship and camaraderie that can be built between them. I brought him on to discuss transitioning to that next stage of life for business owners, which is the life beyond working your own business. And with that, here's my interview with Peter. Hello, Peter. How are you doing, Jason? I'm great. Thanks for taking the time to come in. It's a pleasure being here. So, Peter Merrick, tell us about you. What is it you do? Well, I've been in the financial service industry since the end of 1991. So in September, it will be my 29th year. And it's scary, Jason, (laughs) that I actually say 29 years. I shave uh, my head close and my face because I want to hide the grays. Fair enough. (laughs) I think uh, now you have me counting how many years I've been. It's not that far off your number. Anyway, so Peter, you are, you've worked in the financial services industry. You've been an author. You've done a lot of things in this industry, specifically around high net worth planning. But really today is meant to talk about kind of the core lesson of your book. So tell us about your book first. And let's talk about what the core lesson is and get into why it's important to people who are business owners. Well, let's talk about the title. I call it the King of Main Street. I don't call it the King of Bay Street or the King of Wall Street because most people who- It's not about guys like me and you. It's about people who have the average business, right? It's the average person. It's the the millionaire next door, the person who has an idea, gets the capital, organizes it, and makes it happen. And they've got so much against them. But against all odds, they've raised great families and built great businesses, employed people, paid taxes, and now they're at another stage in their life, and it's the average person. So it's the kings of Main Street. It's the people who make our economy work, not the people who buy, sell, and trade. And I thought that was really important because I felt that our society is hyped up, you know, someone on Wall Street, like the, who makes yeah. money or, you know, some big executive and it ignores the average person. It's the average person who has an idea, sets out and pays taxes and, yeah. you know, provides the services. Employs and, people. And those are the people I wanted to focus on, what was important for them and how to transition to the next stage where they're now going to be contributing to our society in a much more important way, I believe. And that's as our societal elders, because these are people who walk the path and now can guide the next generation. And this is something that's been important in our culture for centuries, for millennium, since probably humans started communicating. And unfortunately, our society has forgotten that. Yeah, very true. So the book is a narrative that basically talks about a young business owner meeting a gentleman who doesn't realize who he is, but is a very successful older business owner who then takes him under his wing and mentors him. And there's a lot of financial learnings in this book, but I think the more important message that we've talked about is more so just that entire experience that these two people are going through and how it is basically purposeful to both of them, or, or it lends purpose to both of them and creates that. So let's talk about that entire dynamic and why that's important. Well, before before we do that, Jason, sure. I just want to share with you uh, what was the catalyst for me writing yeah, this book. Yeah, tell me why the book was made. Uh, I, I was very fortunate that the financial industry gave me an opportunity to find out we each have skills, and I discovered 
writing. Mm -hmm. And writing was something which was really important to me because it allowed me to articulate things that were floating in my head. And I guess over the course of my career, I wrote three textbooks and 800 published articles. And my last textbook that I wrote, I was very fortunate to get a, a gentleman who ran a very large foundation for one of the wealthiest people on this planet. And it was called, the, the book was on philanthropy and how to uh, approach that subject with wealthy people similar to the end of the, yeah. the person he worked with. So the individual he worked for was in Toronto and I got myself invited to a group that he was speaking to. And I wanted to give him my textbook. Now, I didn't write my textbooks myself. These were huge. I wouldn't read them myself unless I had to. They were like 1,200 pages. So mm -hmm. I approached this gentleman, and I tried to give him my book. And he politely says to me, Peter, you keep it. And I'm like a little in shock, because I'm saying, well, you know, this person who's giving away a billion dollars of your money, he's in this book. Like, don't you want it? And then he said something very revealing to me, Jason. He said he spent uh, his whole life painting people like you and I to read books like that so he didn't have to read it yep and I thought about it I sat around my life I delegate as much as possible yeah. except for what I you know other stuff I want to learn but continue <laughs> so so I thought about it and I says he's right and at that point I said you know I'm gonna go and write a book of everything that I've written but I'm gonna write in a narrative that works mm -hmm. I started reading everything I could on story I uh, realized very early on I read about Joseph Campbell who he wrote a book in 1948 called the heroes the hero with a thousand faces mm -hmm. And Star Wars is based on his book. And I said, oh, you know, that's... That, that and The Hidden Fortress by, uh, oh, God, what's his name? The Japanese producer. It'll come back to me. Kurosawa. There we go. <laughs> well, the, the, hero, the Hero with a Thousand Faces is the story of everybody. It's about a birth death. It's like you enter one stage of life mm -hmm. as you another stage dies. Yes. And it's got an arc. And, it, and I said, you know, I'm going to go and take everything that you and I have experienced, observe, you know, because I'm not going to say that I'm the first person to observe these things. I'm sure like thousands and maybe millions of people are right now walking or observing these things. But I'm going to find a way to communicate this. Mm -hmm. And I got really fascinated. I read over 200 books on aging. It got very depressing for me because you know what the difference between me and the you know, the so-called older person I was reading about? How many years? Yeah, it was, it was time. Yeah, it's just and time. There, there's a Which comes there, for all of us. And there's a, there's a saying, the difference between the eater and the eating is time. Yes. And I sort of wanted to communicate this because uh, you're a university prof. I was a university yeah. prof teaching financial planning. And... One of the issues was is there was very little talking beyond the accumulation stage. There was very little talked yeah. about like how, like how do you have a healthy life after you've done that? Yeah. And again, it was for me. I was young and I was projecting where I was, what I would enjoy doing, and I thought it was uh, going on cruise on the Yangtze River and you know yeah. being all inclusives. And I mean, we, you're right. We focus so much on the accumulation stage, and then once you get it, what do you do with the money? But I mean, the reality I've seen this with countless business owners and executives. Gives, and it's it's, it's Manzel's hierarchy of needs. You know, you've taken care of the, all the all the base needs you have, and you get to the self actualization piece, right? Which is like, how do you define yourself and your existence going forward, right? And most of that ends up kind of going backwards and being solely through the business in itself or their identity surrounding their 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 job. But what happens when that life transition stage hits, where that's going to change to something it has to change to something else because of aging. That's right. I don't know anybody who's taken it with them. One of my favorite psalms is Psalms 49. It basically says, the rich man, the beast, the fool, we all go back mm -hmm. to where we came from and there's no ransom you can pay to God. You know, you just, you can't go. So it's really about the relationships you have mm -hmm. and 
and what you've given. And what I what I focused on in the book is I looked at an a younger person who was starting out and an older person who had done it. And the younger person seeks out the mentor and the mentor is open to the younger person. That's really key. Because yes. what's the breakdown right now is younger people don't know how to find the right mentors and older people have this need to mentor. It's almost like a biological need because mm -hmm. they, I think a person becomes a true mentor when they can see beyond their physical existence. They know that the, the sun was here before them and it will be after them yeah. and what's going to be left behind that they leave. And speaking for someone who's mentored, mentors to several young advisors, I mean, there's a bit of an ego stroke there course, which basically gives you fulfillment that, okay, maybe I have done what I thought I have. But more so, I think we all recognize the person across the table from us. We recognize the person who doesn't know where to turn, who doesn't know where to start, who the things that you take for granted because you've been there for so long that, you know, you just know the answer to or you know how to execute on is something they never contemplated, right? And being able to give back in that regard, I think to myself, every time I do that, I'm, I'm basically doing it for someone who's just like me 20, 30 years ago. You know, and I, mean, I not, not 30 years ago, I'm not that old, but 20 years ago. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting that, that you say that because I remember I had a life-changing uh, situation where an individual called me up and I had just written my first book and I knew that I was going to blow it. It was too big for me. And I had a moment of clarity knowing that I had to go to someone who had actually walked the path before and I brought a senior advisor in. And I still work with this individual today. He's, he's my partner. Mm -hmm. This is like 15 years ago because I knew I could tell the difference between me and someone who was seasoned and I knew I was going to blow it. And I was able to rely on that person. I was able to lean on them emotionally and it was able to come it came to reality. One thing happened recently, I was asked to be part of a, a financial planning case, mm -hmm. and I knew that it didn't make sense to me. And there was this younger advisor who was involved, and I had real satisfaction to like, you know, say, don't get too excited. Like, don't count your chickens. Like mm -hmm. it was, I like, because I'd been there before. Yeah. And that's something, now sometimes people have to do yeah, it. They start doing the math on how much they're gonna make off the case, and they get overly excited, and it starts to, yeah, you can't even, you can't even go there. Oh, I actually walk, like when I look at when I get brought into a really big case, I, I don't even, I think about how much work it's requiring. Yeah. I don't think about the dollars because yeah. really what money. you learned. <laughs> well, on top of that, people don't realize what is money. It's what you traded your life energy for. That hopefully you will then invite one day trade for what you want to fulfill in your life. Right. But when people are young, they focus too much on doing. And later on in life, they have to focus on being. Exactly. So, you know, I only have so much time. Who do I want to spend that time with? The reason I wrote The King of Main Street is I love entrepreneurs, first generation entrepreneurs. And people can't tell the difference between a first generation and someone who's inherited. A first generation entrepreneur, when you see their success, what you're not seeing is their ability or their ability to overcome complexity, different levels of complexity mm -hmm. and build in- with, with lack of resources, like- And I, emotional yeah. intelligence too, oh. because they've survived it. Because yep. a lot of people have lots of smarts, but emotionally they're not able to deal yeah. with it. And I just look at someone, I say, you know, it's like the tip of the iceberg. What I see in the physical world, the 3% that supposedly we can see, 
there's the 97%, which I don't see. And that's really the emotion, the character, and everything of that person. And I felt that it was really important to talk about that because you and I are in a very unique situation. We get to visit people in their areas. We're almost the bumblebees within society. Yeah, Because we go and see, re we see real people in different environments and you know different successes and they have all sorts of different ways that they became successful but we probably come to the conclusion that they all have the same thing a lot of them started doing whatever they did because they were looking for survival then they saw an opportunity they also wanted to be self-actualized and i truly believe that the people in our society who have the greatest ability to self-actualize are entrepreneurs because they're rubbing up against the environment and they have to come to terms, this is what I'm strong at, this is what I'm not. Yep. They have to innovate. They can't scale without doing that. And to be successful, you can't, if you're gonna be successful, you have to scale what you're doing. And one of the issues is they don't, sometimes they don't know how to stop. That is, well, you know, so I always say that there's two financial plans. There's the financial one that we work on and there's the what you get to do with all your time and, and that energy once you're done, because there's the old joke that the leading cause of death is retirement, which you know, is. there's a direct correlation between those two. You retire, you're going to die after that. That's just, you know, that's just math, but uh, <laughs> or, or common sense. But the reality is, is that the number, we can see it. We can see it in every plan developing where clients getting close to retirement age, right? We tell them they have the option of retirement on whatever date, maybe that date's already passed. And, you know, you tell them that. And with this thing that they've been racing towards, they've hit it. But if they haven't thought about what they're going to do after or how they're going to feel validation for their existence afterwards, they just never stop. They just keep going, right? And what we often talk to them about is, okay, so what comes next? What are your hobbies? What do you plan to do? Do you plan to travel? How long do you think that's going to last? You know, where are you going to find fulfillment in your days, right? We've talked about, you know, getting involved in mentorship now versus later, getting involved in boards now versus later, charitable considerations that they may want to make, right? Things that are give them fulfillment in life, which frankly, conventionally, we just never, we're so busy working on our normal lives. Do we ever stop to think about that necessarily? Well, it's not anybody's fault because uh, one of the things I've found very interesting is the demographics of aging. In the last two generations, we've had people hit, living well beyond 65. But before the last two generations, and that's only been in yeah. the West, that's only yeah. been in like Western Europe, and that's been in Japan, and that's been in North America. Before then, no one ever really lived beyond, let's say, 60 years old. And when Bismarck made old age at 65, life yeah. expectancy was 40. Exactly. So it'd be like life expectancy now being yeah. 95. Like so going. this is something I teach in my class also, is the entire concept of pension where retirement age came from. And it came from, the closest we can tell is the first person who pegged retirement age was Bismarck, Audubon Bismarck, when he produced the first pension, government pension. And really, when you look at the definition of it, it was hey, you're so old and broken down because everything was manual labor back in the day, there's just no chance you can earn a living, so we should step in. And you're right, life expectancy was in the 40s, right? But now, life expectancy and our quality of life expanded so far beyond that to the point where now we're looking at 80 plus with you know a couple having a 10% chance of someone being over 95 in Western society, that you know 65 unfortunately never budged. You know, mentally, those things became sticky. And yeah, if, if we had changed it for life expectancy, then that number would be, you wouldn't get a pension until age 95. <laughs> well, you know, when I started looking at, I got fascinated with like studying demographics. So uh, in demographics, they believe that about 108 
billion people have lived on this planet and only about 600 million people out of those 108 billion people who've lived have lived over 65 and two-thirds of those people are alive today and yeah. by by the 2050 they're expecting it to be 1.5 billion people over the age of 65 now you know what's scary about that it's more people than were alive at the turn of the 20th century and we don't know and what it means to have a whole group of people like this but what we do have and getting oh, back to the book yeah. is they there are sources out there people who've studied it but it hasn't been brought to the public and i thought it was very important to talk about how do you transition from the first half of life which carl Jung called it like the morning mm -hmm. where you're accumulating it's all about getting things and being and and acquiring things whether it's your ego yep. designations education houses everything and the second half is getting rid of it and deconstructing so talk to me about that stage let's focus in now yep. so we've talked we've talked around yep. it for a while so from your your viewpoint from your learning what what's the purposeful way or kind of the best practices ways or considerations for people to take when transitioning into that stage of life? Well, as we transition to that, I just want to talk, break it down into what six questions sure. that people ask Perfect. in their life. And you're hitting on the last two questions. Okay, so let's start. I'm jumping the, jumping the gun. No, let's no, go no, one through four. So okay. for the first question that a human being asks when they show up on this planet and they're a sponge is like, who am I? Am I a boy? Am I Canadian? Am I American? Am I Catholic? Am I Muslim? Am I Jewish? Yeah. What am I figuring out their tribes? They're trying to figure out where I am, who I am. Yeah. And then around teenage years, the second question that, that's asked is, how do I fit in? You know, that uncomfortable high school age, you know, it's yeah. like, a, like, like, how do I fit into this group? Around 20 years old, the question is, um, what will I do? It's not an identity question. Mm -hmm. It's about like, am I a financial planner? Am I an entrepreneur? Am, and that's a stage where we yeah, start looking. from the nurtured stage to the self needing to walk on your own two legs. And, and, we're, and we're trying to figure, it's not an identity, but it's sort of like, I, I'm, I'm going to choose my profession, I'm going to choose my mate, I'm going to choose where I'm going in my life. Then the third question happens around middle age. So you're 40 years old, right? Way to give that away. Yes, I, I can't. Well, you're, now, this might not survive editing. Continue. <laughs> you're 50. No, no. Well, I'm 50. So the, the third question, which is a very important question is, sorry, sorry, it's the fourth question. And what that the fourth question is, who have I become? I'm no longer mm -hmm. planning my life. I am in my life. So I had these dreams about being a great entrepreneur and to, you know, have like a great family and all sorts of things. And then reality hits. This is what my life is. And some people transition very gracefully mm -hmm. and some people don't. Yep. And this is what they call, what do, we, what do they call that? Midlife crisis. Midlife crisis. Because the image they had when they were a kid is not the image that they had that of themselves at that age. They also, something else happens at that stage, which is very important. What happens is you're still rooted in life, mm -hmm. you know, like the physical reality, and at the same time, you're starting to see life beyond yourself. So mm -hmm. it sort of gets a little scary because you start people become really serious in financial planning at that point because they mm -hmm. say, "Oh my God, you know that academic es yeah. exercise that one day I won't be here and I'll be yeah. old. It's real." Yeah. If I ever want to <laughs> stop working, what am I going to do? Like you. Know, it's, I can't keep going at the same pace I was at 
when I was 40. And we start seeing things around us we can't deny anymore. Our parents' generation is dying. Our yeah. parents might have died, like getting sick, all sorts of things. Things that we were, we knew academically were real, but now we're facing it. There's an African saying, this is not real until it's in my muscles. So the fourth question we ask is, who have I become? Around the late 50s, and this is where succession planning and real planning starts. It's around 55, and it's before the end of like middle age, it's late middle age, and it's like, what have I accomplished? And it's like you, there's more days behind you than in for, uh, forward. And this is where people make choices. And you were talking about retirement, and that's death. I was very fortunate in the late 1990s to do a lot of outplacement with police officers over at Elmers. And I kept on asking, why are you retiring in your early 50s? And they would tell me, well, Bob, he was a lifer. A lifer meant like worked until he was 65 and it was mandatory retirement. And he was like, you know, going to the, following his spouse around shopping, whatever. And six months later, I was at his funeral. And then there was Bob and Bob, you know, was a lifer and he did X. And then six months later, I was at yeah, his funeral because sure. they lost their sense of purpose and they were they too the old to believe that they could do something else. Yeah, and it's interesting because I always tell people, you need that again, that second, that second retirement plan because in life working, you're driving at 100 miles an hour. And you're thinking that at 65, suddenly you hit the brakes. Well, what happens when you hit the brick wall and stop dead at 65? Well, you literally stop dead, right? If you don't, if you can't come up with that routine, that habit, you're in trouble. And this is also why uh, gray divorce is one of the biggest inclines and in our biggest growth rates in the divorce rate is people over 65 because, you know what? Maybe both members of the couple both come into the identity crisis at that stage and, you know, they can't work it out. Yeah, because now they have to relate to each other differently than they yeah. did before. They're not busy nine to five anymore. Well, the an another uh, conversation I had is I was talking to someone, he merged his firm with one of the large four accounting firms. And I asked him because at his firm, he didn't have retirement, he had a special deal. And I said, well, what do you think now that mandatory retirement amongst partners is at 64? And he said, you know, most partners here, they leave in their like mid to late 50s. And I asked him why. And his response was they think they, they have another kick at the can. They're at the point where they believe they can actually now do yeah. what they want to do. Now, one thing that I think is important, I address this in my book, I call it the layaway plan. And the layaway plan is this. I am going to do what I don't want to do that one day I will switch and do what I really want to do. There's two problems, and most people live that delusion in life. I take this job, I'm doing what I need to do, I'm building, like I'm raising my yeah. family and whatever. The problem is there's two flawed assumptions there. One is that you'll know when the time comes, and yeah. unfortunately when the time usually comes, you don't have any choices. So for example, you have a heart attack, you have a stroke, it's a, a yeah. game over your your choices are limited yeah. number and so that's one ish one problem with that assumption the second major problem with that assumption is you think you're going to live forever yeah. and i don't know anybody who's lived forever and when it comes to looking at planning and i tried to address this I, you know you can look to wise people who've been in the past and find out what they've done and i i'll share with you one of the most fascinating stories i ever read about and i would recommend anybody who listens to this podcast to go online and get this free essay it was written mm -hmm. by andrew carnegie he wrote uh called the gospel of wealth in 1898 
Now, at this point, no one knew how rich he was. He'd given $10 million away, and back then, that's probably like a billion dollars. However, he decided to sell his company in 1901. And he was, at that point, he was- Time wasn't bad, but go on. He was crowned the wealthiest man who had lived, who mm-hmm. was alive. His net worth at that point was equivalent to 398 billion dollars in today's dollars that's 2019 so richer than everybody but vladimir putin continue yes <laughs> one of the richest men but what did he do he sat down and he wrote this essay what the responsibility of wealth was oh yes i remember hearing about this continue. and it is worthwhile and he says that the difference between a wealthy miser and a dead steer only have value when they're dead <laughs> <laughs> it's not a cow making milk yeah He says someone who donates their money when they're dead, not when they're alive. He said that if they could have taken it with them, they would have. He also talks about giving it all to the children. He says it's it's vanity. It's thinking they're going to live on. And what it is, it's an entrapment. It's actually tying these children. Yeah. Warren Buffett wrote something similar about how he basically called uh, leaving it all to the kids. First of all, his advice was leave every leave enough that they can do anything, but not so much that they that they can't that they can't choose to do nothing. Because he basically said they've basically they've won the lottery of the womb, and you have two choices: you can enable them, or you can basically cripple them. Letting them giving them enough that they can do nothing with the rest of their lives is crippling. And it's unfortunate because I've seen that again and again. <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually have come to a conclusion: if you aim to be super, super, super wealthy and successful, don't have kids. And I'm <laughs> well, they share- do cost a lot of money. N- no. <laughs> But the reason why I say that is what you want your children to aspire to more than they than they have. Yeah. But if they have everything, yeah, it's an issue. It's amazing how many times I've seen that happen where the individuals who basically they come up and they spoil their kids because they they didn't have anything and they don't want the kids ever have to struggle the way they did yeah. failing to realize the struggles who made them the successful person they are and then the kids turn around and show no gratitude and basically just continue to live off the dole for the rest of their lives well the uh, mary antoinette when she said let them eat cake misquoted but continue okay. <laughs> well i'm just but what does that mean she meant brioche, but go on <laughs> but let's look at that let them eat cake what does that mean well in their world if you don't have bread because they were yeah. saying we want bread Eat cake, man. Well, if you don't have cake, if you don't have bread, there's cake. Because in her world, she had it. I had a client who I called him out on this about 15 years, no, about 10 years ago. He was, uh, his kids, they they went into his business very successfully. He came to Canada with 300 bucks. We're talking he's worth like probably a quarter billion now. And uh, he says his kids just don't have it. They just don't have it. And yep. this is a this is basis of a book I'm right, working right now. And I look at his kids. They, the first job they took was at his factory. And they're executives already. They're not oh, working boy. in the back. They're working. Yeah, they they're the boss. And he says his kids just don't have it. And I look out at the parking lot and I see the kids' cars. And I don't have these cars. And this guy didn't have those cars. And I asked him why they have these cars. He says, oh, they're good cars. They're BMWs and Mercedes and Jaguars, right? And I'm saying, so why do they have these? Oh, these are good cars. They don't break down. And I looked and I called him on it. I said, I'm not going to say this on the podcast, but I called him on it. And Mm -hmm. I said, you bought those cars for your kids, not because they're safe and they're good and they don't break down. You wish when you were that age, you could have that car. But these kids never had the work. They don't have the 
appreciation that you yeah. have for them having that car. Because for them, they always had the cake and the bread and everything else that yep. they ever needed. And they had the job and they didn't have to struggle and they didn't have any of that appreciation. Yeah, it's interesting because it doesn't have to be that way. Because, I mean, one of the wealthiest people, I've met, wealthiest families I've ever met in my life, and I'm not going to name names because they were known, having a conversation with the next generation, not one, but multiple generations down about uh, wealth, intergenerational wealth transfer saying, look, I respect what your family's done because typically, you know, as you know, three generations, the money's gone. That's kind of the normal statistic. And I, all I see is, is an incredible amount of hustle from all of you. Like you keep this ambition going, like, how do you do that? And the simple response was simple. Do you think I got anything in life? And I was handed to me. I'm like, thinking to myself, doing the math on how much the family's worth. I'm like, really? He's like, no. He goes, yeah, you know, they took care of me. They've sheltered me. I, I, I grew up a privileged life. But at the end of the day, like, it was, if I wanted anything, to go out and work for it. I didn't take jobs with them to start. Went out and proved himself, proved himself fully before they got brought into the, the company, right? So the, the ambition, the, the work, the need to work hard, yeah, you know what? We're going to give you every opportunity to basically get all the skill sets you need in order to be successful, but we're not going to give you that success. And I was, I was just like, bravo, and like clapping my hands. Like, that's exactly how to handle it. But, you know, it's difficult because it does mean, for a lot of people, it means, you know, we're living that struggle themselves in their mind that they want to spare their children that. But it's so important that they let their children struggle because that struggle defines who they are going forward and then why they're going to be successful. It's interesting. I was talking to a very successful uh, gentleman and very, like he was, you know, like American Canadian dream. Like, and he, you would not want to be in business, like be on the other side of the table with him because you'd leave without fingers, <laughs> you know? And like, I, lucky in our business, like we're not in that type of business dealing with them. We're helping them manage their money. So I, I looked at him once and I, cause his kids were like at the top private schools and they had like, this guy lived in Russia in filth, you know, and he's now living the dream yeah. and he's worked for every cent of it. So I asked him, so what would happen if your son met a guy like you in business and you know what his response was jason take every penny i don't want to think about it because he knew what he did yeah he knew because he said i do not want my kids there were like six of us in a room the size of this room here and that's what we're living in and the room we're in is a very nice size boardroom however it's not meant for six people to live in no <laughs> so okay so we, have we answered all six questions yet i think we're pretty close. well the last yeah. question yeah, is five. important and so, so number, so just to address what number five. Well, let's let me recap what they are. Yeah. Who am I? Yep. How do I fit in? Mm -hmm. What will I do? Who have I become? What have I accomplished? And now the last one is the most important question. What will my legacy be? Yes. And I truly believe from my studying of reading, reading about successful people who I admire, the ones who ask that question earliest are the ones who leave the biggest mark. These are the people who are thinking beyond themselves, beyond this time, they're thinking of the future. And if they have the means to do things, for example, Bill Gates, he's worth billions of dollars. He decides that he wants malaria to be canceled out of human history. 
Boom. He has a resources act. He doesn't have to go to the committee. These are people who make major changes and you don't have to be super successful because just before we were talking, and what I mean by that successful financially to do this, because we've talked about before this podcast about Mother Teresa. She ends up in Calcutta. She's a nun in the middle of nowhere. It's not like the it's not the center of the the Catholic empire. And she makes the best of it and and we all talk and marvel of what she did. Yep. Everybody. There's not a person who doesn't hear her story, who does not marvel. It does not matter what religion they're from or where they're from. She did incredible mm-hmm. stuff. So legacy. How will I be remembered? And what can I do to do that? And the more we have a purpose, what we want to be remembered for. I mean, one of the things that I, I started doing with a number of my really successful clients is I, inter- I introduced them to a biographer. If they're not a writer, I just, like, I introduced them to a biographer. Oh, that's interesting, because that's got to be a bit of a nerd-wracker, right? Because you're like, okay, let's talk about all the success I've had to date, and you're just like, what's the back half look like? Right, like you had, to me, that would be almost a little bit nerve-wracking. Like, if I was if I was in that stage of 50, 60, I think, okay, that's everything there, but... What's the next part of the story going to be? Well, let, but let's tell the story. Yeah. Because the thing is, the kids don't know the story. That's very true. And like me revealing, maybe you can't write it. So I, you know, I have um, in my Rolodex, I have, uh, you know, I've got a few. I don't write. I write for the things that I find passionate. But I know people who are able to help people mm-hmm. put their stories together, interview people. And their stories are incredible. And in essence, after they're gone... Who's going to tell this story? And I'll share with you where it came to me. A number of years ago, I was in Palm Springs and I was talking to a friend. And he wrote, a very successful man and worked for a company that everybody knows about. And he said he doesn't want to write anymore. He wrote two books and they were not bad. And he um, does speaking. And the problem is the company he worked for, everybody wanted to talk about that company that mm-hmm. he worked for and you know, what it was like yep. to grow it. And he told me he doesn't want to write anymore and he's getting, you know, he's getting tired of that. And I said to him, I'm from Toronto and I remember when we won the World Series and I couldn't imagine what my life would be like that every time I met somebody and I played for, let's say, the Toronto Blue Jays, they said, what was it like, like the playing... World in yeah. the World Series and playing with Mookie Wilson or Joe Carter or was Mookie on the team back anyway. Yeah, he was, he was the second one. He wasn't the he was he was ninety three. Okay, fair enough. So what was it like playing with these guys? And that's everyone talking about it. And I said, you know what I'd be interested in what your kids would be interested? I would be interested in reading about your family story and how you took how that opportunity or that luck or whatever came in and actually seeing that narrative tie in. And he's at that point like he's working on mm-hmm. his uh, autobiography. However, some people don't have that skill. They don't have the power yep. of the word, but their kids don't know, and going on the future, that will be one of the greatest gifts that a really successful entrepreneur can give their children. And I actually, and we're talking, it's not cheap. It's like $40,000 or something like that, the higher professional biographer. But it's definitely worth it if you want to like leave something that's going to be so. lasting because we're in this building right now. It's beautiful, Jason. Mm-hmm. And you. I got to tell you, yeah, I love it. It's like, it's... It's rustic. It's beautiful. It's the old Gendron building, which is eventually became CCM. It's the old bicycle factory back when bicycles were still made of wood. Well, one of the things I think about is you and I don't know who built it. Not a clue. We don't know who this person is. This will not... Like, it's beautiful. We're enjoying it. But we don't know who built it. We don't know... And I'm thinking, well, this person here must have been a significant person. Yeah. 
in the time, and we don't know even who that person is. Yeah. So this is something which I think is very powerful, and it's also very powerful when someone starts working on somebody. Because if you don't, you if you don't know where you've been, and your family doesn't know where you've been, how will you know where you are? And this comes the most important thing: where are you going? You cannot, if you don't know where you've been or where you are, you will not know where you're going. And this is so important for key people who are entrepreneurs who've been running a race for so long to get perspective and by taking that perspective then they're able to say what do i now the end of the story what do i want the end of the story because carnegie was uh not exactly liked that's yeah. like the first part of his life well so yeah he broke unions he did everything however right now there's over two thousand public libraries yeah. with his name the well, uh, same story with no with the alfred nobel right when when they ran his obituary accidentally. They called him the dealer of death and basically nothing positive was said. And he realized that that wasn't what he wanted his legacy to be, right? Yep. So let's talk about the actualization of legacy, right? So you talked about sharing the story first and foremost, right? That is the book, that, you know, the, the, the idea of the biography. It doesn't have to be anything so grandiose, right? It, no. can, be, it can be simple mentorship, right? It's, a, it's, on. it's a lessons learned. It's being able to communicate it. Now, this is where it's really important to put when you're looking at where I've been and where I am, this is where, and you come to terms with death, because in essence you can't plan without coming. I, yep. I, if you look at the historical record, when you look at caves and whatever, what happened 40,000 years ago with hu humans is they started burying their dead. And what was that? They came to the conclusion that they were going to die. So you have to come to a conclusion that you're going to come to the end. So at that point, you now take stock. This is, if you don't have the skill set, you need to go and seek someone like Jason out, <laughs> who's got certain skills because you've developed certain skills for yourself, starting building a business. It's starting to sound like uh, taken time. <laughs> I don't have the decent skills, but I've got different ones for helping people with money, yes. Right, Help, but helping them take yeah. stock of their their, what they can do with their resources yep. and how they can deploy them. I want to go and make sure that my kids are taken care of, my grandkids are taken yep. care of. I also want to make sure that I'm not a burden on anybody. So I'm planning for old age. I'm planning for my income. I'm planning if I become sick. I might even be planning for how I'm going to be buried. Yeah. I would recommend that as well. And I'm also looking beyond that and I'm saying, how can I help the next generation more than just my family? Because none of us are an island upon ourselves. We are part of a community. We are part of a society and we can't ignore it. You and I have been highly influenced because we're Canadians mm -hmm. and we benefited because of people who came before of us. And there's lots of parks and there's lots of buildings and monuments named after people who've contributed to society, who saw their responsibility to society. And by going to a financial planner who has the skill set to help you take your assets and help you realize that. Realize your own goals, your family's goals, health, and also continuing our society that will give them the opportunity, your family, and give other people in our society opportunity to meet their success. And getting back to Carnegie, he, when he was came to, uh, from Scotland, when he came to the United States, there was a wealthy person who had a library that was just open to him. Mm -hmm. And he felt he, the world was open to this individual, to himself because of that. And he wanted to offer that to other people. So he made public libraries because he wanted some immigrant kids, someone who wanted a better life, who saw a better life, but had no idea what that life was to be 
introduced to what that better life can be or what that or how to achieve that life and that's where mentorship comes in to actually not just give dollars but to give time to actually help someone by saying when they're going down a path sharing with them how you went down that path mm -hmm. and how it was a bad going down that path wasn't smart unfortunately you have to learn however once they they hit a wall they'll remember they'll say jason told me and now i know before it was theoretical, it was academic, but now I know. You know, it's interesting because so, you know, society is such a poor job of creating those opportunities, especially once you're done working. Like a lot of the professional associations, like you basically, oh, you're retired. Guess what? You're dropping your CPA. Guess what? You're dropping this designation. You're dropping that. And you become disconnected from that community, right? As a couple, I mean, the Financial Planning Association, which I helped launch, and the IAFP, which is also one, also one I serve on the board of, there's an emeritus category for, for planners. And I, what age? Uh, retirement. You retire. You're, you know, you retire. You're no longer practicing. You can. There's a, there's a category for you, and I think that is an incredibly valuable thing that I want to over time build in the association to a larger degree. Because I looked at that and said, there's no way I want to lose the people who who knew so much just because they're transitioning. And one of one of the gentlemen who helped me out in starting this thing is a man named John Page. Who this guy? I don't know if you ever ever did you read him? I think so. Yeah. So this guy was doing like fee only and and like advanced planning back in like the 80s and like. So like one of the pioneers in this space and written best practices manuals and all kinds of stuff and knows more about this than anyone. And he said, when I said, oh, you could apply to, to join, he's like, oh, I didn't think I could. I didn't know that that would be a category for me. I said, do you really think for one second that I would not engage you in the community and, and let you contribute? Like that would be insane to me. But that's unfortunately what so many of these, you know, so many organizations do. And, you know, that's, that's those of us who are affiliated. Can, can I add to yeah, that? Yeah, by all means. I think that's just not that organization that's our society. In societies for, for millennia. Yeah, well, and where I, is, where's the conduit? Like, we have a conduit because we have an association, but where's the conduit for the average business owner? Maybe if you get involved in a YPO or young um, YPO or, young, or entrepreneurs organization or something like that, they may have those facilities. But unless you get out there and network with other people in some positions, you're not even going to have the conduit to open up to to create that kind of mentorship ability. And it's unfortunately it's been lost. If uh, there's there's two things that I look at. One, in the past, human societies spent a lot of resources on mentorship, yeah. especially male mentorship, because women mature. Boys need to be beaten up, <laughs> knocked on the head to become. Adults and contributing members of society. In fairness, we need more female mentorship because, again, part of the entire not having women in positions of authority to the same degree is lack of. I would, I, lack I, of would, I would agree yeah. with that. I would the, the, yeah, the, but, I'm but address, yes, I'm address, I would address. Yeah. The, I'm going to address that issue. It happens to be women are more mature than men, and boys need to be hit on the head. They literally need to be hit on the head. And, yeah. But if our society, our past generation, spent so much resources on mentorship, and we don't now, and it's like it's, it's pseudo-mentorship. If they spent so much resources, there was a utility, there was a value to initiation mm -hmm. into the community, which we've lost. It's completely, it's been lost and there's people floundering. And what used to happen is you would have, if you did live to where we are, you would have three generations in a home. Yeah. And right now, you don't have that. Old, older people are separated. They go off to Florida. Yeah. They go to... If they move old, into the home of their kids, it's because of a financial or physical need, right? It's not a choice, right? Right, because our society gives a stigma to it. But in the past, that was really helpful. Yeah. Now, one thing, Still common in many European countries. 
yeah, and other, other and countries one, around the world. And then there's one thing to keep in mind why that's so important. We are the only ape that male apes live beyond like reproductive and female apes. And <laughs> the thing is, there's got to be a biological reason for that. And that's because that special relationship of an older person who lived their life yeah. sharing and caring for a younger person because when yeah. you're young and you have a young family you're busy but, trying to put food on the table and make yeah. you know well you're, you're absolutely you're, right you're building with your you're dealing with your ego but later on that's so important what has to happen is that there's got to be more focused on getting older people who've been successful to get involved with younger people and i was told a story by one of the greatest planners that I know, Joe Marceau. He started MD management mm -hmm. and he was a fee he was a purist, a fee for only planner. And yeah. he was and he tells me a story how he was brought into this very large company and they had great retirement plans and nobody was taking it. And the owner brought him in and said, like I, the president brought him in and said, like, no one's taking it. So so tell me about your culture. And he started telling me how great the culture was. It was just, you know, they, they everyone did everything together. It was like so wonderful. I said, so uh, do you have a retirement club? And he said, no. He said, you do now. <laughs> and as soon as they create that retirement club, all these people, they took their packages. But one of the major issues in our society is you were talking about, like you invited John, John Page. Here's someone who is a library of experience that you just can't get. You go into like these large multinational companies, especially ones that had like uh, uh, traditional pensions. What they would do is they would, you would start looking at a company that had, let's say 30,000 employees. And you'd see that what happened to all these people over 50? The companies got rid of them. It's yeah. like, you can't institutionalize that wisdom, that wisdom that comes from experience. Knowledge management is contained within our heads typically. And people don't, and this is so important. And again, young entrepreneurs want more like the go to someone Guidance. who's been successful. Because if I want advice on a marriage, I want to go to someone who's been married 50 years. Well, if you think you know everything, start a business and find out just how quickly you don't. Yeah. Um, so any parting thoughts before we go? My parting thought is this. I think what you're doing, Jason, is great. Thank you. You know, I think having a podcast, sharing inf valuable information is great. And the most important thing that I want to leave with people is we all want to focus on our legacy. And I would like to think that this conversation has helped people thinking, what am I going to be remembered for? And once you start thinking about that, then the question comes, what am I doing right now to make that happen? Hmm. What am I doing that with my financial planning? What am I doing with my time? What am I doing with my family? What am I doing with my community to make that a reality? Great. Fantastic. Well, I hope this starts people working on the second financial plan I always talk about, or second retirement plan, that is. But thank you very much for taking the time, Peter. Thank you so much. So that was my interview with Peter Merrick. I hope you enjoyed that. It was not the conventional financial planning conversation, but it was one that people need to spend a lot more time contemplating. Because as I said in the podcast, if you go 100 miles an hour and suddenly stop, you're going to die, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Hopefully you don't. Hopefully you work on the second retirement plan as I suggested, and hopefully you are ready for that day when it comes and do so happily. As always, I am Jason Pereira, and this has been the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. 
You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. For more episodes, go to jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.